Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, March 4th, 2014. All right, I'm... Oh, man. This program is going to be all over the map again. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. The, the church is just, you know, a large section of the church, kind of the mainstream, not all of it, but you know, the main major stream of evangelicalism is... Literally, I mean, not interested at all in uh, what God's Word says, the distinctions that it makes, and uh, as a result of it, you know, you, you got to stop and ask some tough questions. In fact, if you follow me on Facebook and Twitter, if you, if you, in fact, if you don't follow me on Facebook and Twitter, and maybe you're not on Facebook or you're not on Twitter, it might even be worth just logging on and joining Facebook and Twitter just to follow me on Facebook and Twitter to see what happens. Because uh, on a day-to-day basis, things can get rather um, rather interesting. And from time to time, I, I get to the point where I've got all this stuff built up inside of me, and I just kind of let it loose. And uh, today was one of those days. I, I, I uh, let it loose a little bit and um, asked a series of difficult, tough questions that I think are kind of like – for lack of a better way of putting it, just good challenge questions for what's going wrong in the church today. And um, I compiled them in a post, and it's at fightingforthefaith.com. In fact, hang on a second here. I I, I had it. There it is. <clears throat> Sorry. I, one of those things, you know, I, I've got the Safari web browser, and, uh, you know, because I'm a Macintosh guy. And uh, in throughout the day as I'm researching different uh, potential uh, segments that we're going to cover here at Fighting for the Faith, different news stories I'm tracking down, different teachers I'm, you know, I'm keeping an eye on. I have so many tabs open in in Safari. It it would make you basically say, "How does he get anything done?" I uh, the answer is I have no idea. I I have an extremely good piling system is probably the way of putting it in at least on my uh, web browser. But anyway, I uh, I put together the questions that I asked into a blog post and you can find it at fightingforthefaith.com, but you have to actually search for it in the search bar. Um 
you know, when you get there. And the name of it is, Are You Ready to Answer the Tough Questions About Today's Churches? I'll link to it with, from today's uh, podcast on the Fighting for the Faith website. Um, so there'll be a link there that you can actually uh, go to it. But uh, here, these, these I think, are kind of like good diagnostic questions. And the question is, what are you going to do with these questions? How would, how would you answer them? And there's a lot of folks in um, the mainstream of evangelicalism who, if asked these questions, would walk away from you, not answer them, um, would basically say you're a hater, or would say something to the effect of, dude, you just don't get it. You, you don't, you know, and I, I, get, I, I get those types of responses on a regular basis uh, when I ask these types of questions. And other people who ask them, they get the same types of responses. But I think these are fair questions to be asking people today. <clears throat> so, for instance, uh, let, let me, uh, here are my challenge questions. In fact, here's what I wrote in the blog post. Uh, I, it's time for Christians to stop sticking their heads in the sand and pretending like everything is okay in the church today. Things are not okay, and if you're brave enough to answer these questions straight on, then you'll see that for yourself. Now, originally I posted these questions on Facebook and Twitter, and I've collected them all here for easy reference. And so here are the questions. Uh, Question number one, why would God give direct special revelation to someone who butchers, twists, and mangles his written word? That's challenge question number one. Why would God give direct special revelation to to someone who butchers, twists, and mangles his word. Now, I'm not going to answer the question. I'm just going to keep reading the question. Question number two. Why would God visibly manifest his glory, and I should put that in quotes, his glory in a church where the pastor teaches a false and heretical gospel? Mm -hmm. Yeah, why would God visibly manifest his glory in a church where the pastor teaches a false and heretical gospel? Question three. Why would God want those who believe and proclaim sound doctrine to unite with those who teach heresy and preach a false gospel? Let me repeat that again. Why would God want those who believe and proclaim sound doctrine to unite with those who teach heresy and preach a false gospel? Next question. Why would God want you to ignore what his written word says in order to pursue some new move, uh, in, in quotes, new move of the Spirit. Yeah, let me ask it again. Why would God want you to ignore what his written word says in order to pursue some new move of the Spirit? Next question. Why would God allow your church to opt out of the Great Commission in order to pursue a unique vision given to your local pastor? Uh-huh. Why would God allow your church to opt out of the Great Commission in order to pursue a unique vision given to your local pastor? Next question. Why would God require some pastors to preach the full counsel of the Word of God, but exempt visionary leaders from having to do the same? Mm -hmm. Let me repeat that again. Why would God require some pastors to preach the full counsel of the Word of God, but exempt visionary leaders from having to do the same? Next question. Why would God exempt your local pastor from being a shepherd so that he could be a visionary leader instead? Uh-huh. Why would God exempt your local pastor from being a shepherd so that he could be a visionary leader instead? Next question. Why would God require pastors to meet certain doctrinal and moral standards but exempt visionary leaders from meeting those same standards? Uh-huh. Now, let me read that again. Why would God require pastors to meet certain doctrinal and moral standards but exempt visionary leaders from meeting those same standards? Now, the person I have in mind there, by the way, is uh, G- Gary Lamb. Gary, La- um, Gary Lamb, as it turns out, like I said the other day, he's uh, now divorced his mistress, which would be wife number two. 
which, by the way, uh, that affair that he had with his uh, secretary uh, resulted in him being losing his uh, first church planting uh, leadership, visionary leadership job in the seeker driven movement. He's since planted a second church and now has divorced his mistress and he's engaged to soon to be wife number three. And um, somebody I had a conversation with about this told me that he actually, no joke, um, brags about uh, wife number three and the fact that he's now, you know, going on his third marriage as the thing that qualifies him to minister to messy people because he's messy. Uh-huh. <clears throat> yeah, no joke. Okay, we continue with my question, though. How can something be a legit move of God when the preaching is about the visionary leader rather than Jesus? Mm-hmm. Let me read it again. How can something be a legit move of God when the preaching is about the visionary leader rather than Jesus? Next question. How can something be a legit move of God when the preaching is about you finding your purpose rather than repenting of your sins and being forgiven? Uh-huh. How can something be a legit move of God when the preaching is about you finding your purpose rather than repenting of your sins and being forgiven. Next question. How can a sermon be Christ-centered and cross-focused if Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross are never even mentioned? Mm-hmm. How can a sermon be Christ-centered and cross-focused if Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross are never even mentioned? Next. <clears throat> Since when did God require Christians to swear allegiance to visionary leaders and their codes rather than to himself and his word? Uh, let me read it again. Since when did God require Christians to swear allegiance to visionary leaders and their codes rather than himself and his word? Two more questions, and then we'll, we'll wrap this up here. Uh, next question is, since when did it become okay for a pastor to exegete the voice in his head rather than what's written on the pages of the Bible? Mm-hmm. When, since when did it become okay for a pastor to exegete the voice in his head rather than what's written on the pages of the Bible? And final question, why should any Christian believe God laid a message on your heart when that message contradicts and twists Scripture? Uh-huh. Why should any Christian believe God has laid a message on your heart when that message contradicts and twists Scripture? So what are your answers to these questions? Okay, you should have answers to them. And uh, do you find yourself attempting to justify the biblically unjustifiable rather than repenting for staying silent? You see, ultimately, yeah, this is kind of a diagnost- these are diagnostic questions. And I'm asking them of you rather than the visionary leaders, um, you know, in asking it of the b- broader body of Christ to point out the fact that their um, silence on these outrageously ridiculous matters um, – and rather important matters, as a matter of fact, too. It's kind of it's outrageous in what in what's happening, and, and the questions I'm asking are very important. But by just giving a pass, not addressing the issue, sticking their head in the sands, acting like it's just going to go away, how has that helped the situation? It's only made it worse. You know. So my question is, uh, what should you do now? What should you do now? you know, and answer it after answering these questions. Yeah, I just put that out as a challenge today, kind of as, you know, my opening thought for the uh, the program. But uh, let's, you know, we'll move along. We'll talk about what we're going to do on the uh, rest of today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to cover a couple of things. Now, remember I talked about, again, I hate to even discuss this, uh, the, the, the potential for naked revival. You know, I, I threw that out back on the February 10th episode of Fighting for the Faith. I uh, talked about a, a guy, a, a pastor in the Denver area, somewhere in Colorado, who, uh, who was claiming that there's a huge 
outpouring of the Spirit coming, you know, some grand revival kind of thing. And he was warning people, kind of like Beth Moore style, that there's going to be scoffers and people who are going to, uh, uh, you know, to you know, say that it's not of God. And so he was warning people about this, you know, that this this forthcoming outpouring and move of the Spirit kind of thing. And I said, why should I believe just, you know, you know, on the surface that it's it's a move of God just because you say it's a move of God? What if it's what if it was the naked revival? And I said it as a joke, um, you know, said it to kind of to basically, you know, use a reductio ad absurdum, you know, and and then we had the story about, you know, <clears throat> the people worshiping at the nudist colony. But we also we now have a, a story coming out of Kenya. And uh, and I look at this and I, you know, you know, a lot of people sent me links to this and I saw this and thought, OK, is this <laughs> is this kind of some kind of weird proof that naked revival is coming? I hope I really do hope not. But, uh, you know, I'll, I'll read the story when we get there. The the, uh, the headline kind of says it uh, says it all. But uh, I'll read that story and then we'll switch gears and do uh, a, a grander kind of a. Patricia King gang update, although Jennifer LeClaire, I don't think she technically uh, uh, is in it, within the Patricia King gang, but she's kind of in that greater movement. And um, she uh, she writes for Charisma magazine. And um, we're going to be reviewing a portion of her uh, YouTube video entitled Spiritual Warfare Strategies. That's right. Spiritual Warfare Strategies. When to shout and when to stay silent. Now, if you were confused about when to shout and when to stay silent and, you know, because, you know, your spiritual warfare thing isn't quite working out. Well, this will fine tune things and get get you to the point of clarity, I'm sure. And uh, and then when we come back from the break, we'll take a break after that. When we come back from the break, I'm going to play um, audio from uh, the trailer for the soon to be released Jesus film. Now, don't confuse this with uh, the Son of God movie. And the the reason I'm going to play for you the the two minutes of this trailer is due to the fact that we are, we're coming up on the 35th anniversary of the, of the production of the Jesus film, and I want you to hear the theology in the two minute trailer. The two minute trailer already has more correct theology in it regarding the biblical Jesus. The trailer alone does than the entire Son of God movie and the entire Bible miniseries that aired on uh, the History Channel last year. And the 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 makers of the Jesus film. They're coming up on their 35th anniversary, and they're going to be re-releasing the film in high definition, which is the, the, you know, one of the reasons why this uh, trailer is out. And uh, and so, but I want you to hear the theology in this uh, trailer. And you know, I mean, it's literally the difference between night versus day, light versus darkness, truth versus error. I mean, that's how stark this is. And uh, and then we'll end up hour number one with a Jensen Franklin <clears throat> update. And uh, Jensen Franklin talking about the power of now, the pow- power of now. And um, he's supposedly going to be exegeting from, um, well, um, the, the story of the wedding feast of Canaan, you know, where, Cana, where Jesus turned water into wine. And, uh, and the, the word he keys in on, I mean, it's absolutely befuddling to listen to. It makes you wonder um, if he, like many other of today's mega- pastors have ever actually completed a hermeneutics 101 course you know just just, you know something i'll put out there and then in hour number two i in fact i need to give a disclaimer for hour number two hour number two we will be doing a sermon review like we always do uh we're going to be going to shoreline church and we're going to be listening to a sermon 
that um, I haven't finished the sermon. So this is one of those ones where from time to time I challenge myself, and that is, is I'll sample a sermon and say, okay, this one's going to make the cut, but I don't actually go back and listen to the whole thing. So I don't know where it's going to end. But I have to say this, is that this is a sermon uh, that's about relationships. And I have been trying very hard to not actually review any of the seeker-driven relationship sermons that are absolutely mandatory in their liturgical calendar uh, during the um, Valentine's season. Um, but I've, you know, unfortunately, this is the sermon that's made the cut today, and so it's a relationship sermon. And there are some things discussed in the sermon that are probably not appropriate for little ears. Or, you know, let's just say that if you have little ears listening... Um, they're going to be asking you awkward questions. So as a result of that, um, I, I just put it out there that <clears throat> if you don't want the awkward questions from the little ears, that that sermon review is probably best not listened to with them in the room or uh, alongside of you. And, of course, if you want the awkward questions, then you know, maybe this is be a great icebreaker kind of thing. So just saying, okay? Um, so the, uh, the the name of the sermon, by the way, is Beyond Ordinary, and um, and so that's what we're going to be uh, listening to in hour number two. So we have a lot of ground to cover, and um, since we're going to be starting with a, um, a a news update, and you know, and again, the the question I put out there as you uh, as I read this story to you, is this proof that uh, we are on the verge of the naked revival? <laughs> And of course, I, my prayer is, of course, my prayers, and I, I pray that that is not the case. But uh, <clears throat> here we go from the CBS uh, DC website uh, in Washington DC. The headline reads: Kenyan church pastor bans female parishioners from wearing underwear. Yes. Okay. So, Dateline, Nairobi, Kenya. A local pastor has ordered all women who attend service at Lord's Propeller Redemption, <laughs> Lord's Propeller, Lord's Propeller Redemption Church, to refrain from wearing undergarments while attending, so that they can more easily receive the spirit of Jesus Christ. Yeah, because you know everybody knows that you know underwear is one of those major inhibitors of of women receiving the Holy Spirit. I mean, seriously, this guy is a perv is what we're dealing with here. The Kenyan Daily Post is reporting that a pastor identified only as Reverend Nyahi, uh, and it's N-J-O-H-I, so I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that right. He claimed that bras and underwear are not godly. Um, so does that mean men shouldn't wear underwear either? Additionally, the paper says that Nahi, um, that uh, Nahi wants women... Uh, to, uh, who attend service at the church to be free and that there would be consequences for those who do not comply. According to the UK Metro, most women did in fact show up at the church located in the eastern suburb of Dandora the following Sunday without any undergarments on on under their clothing. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, there you go. Um, you know, and I just throw that out there to ask the question, are we on the verge of naked revival? Is this the first rumblings that naked revival may be on the way? And, of course, my prayer is no. My prayer is please no, no. But, uh, you know, all of this is indicative of, of something crazy. Now, the, re the reason I say that is this, is that if the people in that congregation were truly biblically literate, they would know that Pastor Nahi, whatever you pronounce his name, is um, has got a problem. 
has got a serious problem in that he's not teaching what's in accord with sound doctrine. And rather than show up without their underwear on, they would show up and vote him out or throw him out of the congregation and get a real pastor. They would, rather than get rid of their underwear, they would get rid of their pastor. That's what they need to do because the guy's got a serious problem. He's not teaching what's true in accord with sound doctrine, and he's making stuff up. And he clearly has issues of a sexual nature that, again, I simple, just my simple um, analysis of this is that the pastor there is a perv. That's what the problem is, and they need to get rid of him. But, of course, you know, this may be indicative that we are on the verge of naked revival. And if that breaks out, if by the way, if the naked revival actually does end up breaking out, don't ever accuse me of being a prophet because I, I am not – that <laughs> I'm not a prophet. Um, if that just so happens to be the thing that breaks out, it has nothing to do with any prophetic ability on my part. There's not a prophetic bone in my body. Instead, what we're dealing with is just my ability to look at trends within the church and connect the dots and forecast a future. It has nothing to do with any prophetic skill on my part. So I just want to make that clear. Okay, moving along. So, you know, are you bogged down in your uh, spiritual warfare life and finding that uh, you're just not having the uh, victories that you expected? Well, it may be that due to the fact that you're shouting when you should be silent and you're silent when you should be shouting. Right. Yeah. Here's Jennifer LeClaire, who uh, writes for Charisma Magazine from her web blog, um, explaining to us uh, what she has received from God. Uh, as far as clarification uh, in the realm of spiritual warfare as to when to shout and when to stay silent and vice versa. So uh, here's uh, Jennifer LeClaire to explain this important spiritual warfare strategy to us. Here we go. Hi, it's Jennifer LeClaire. You probably know me from my book, The Spiritual Warrior's Guide to Defeating Jezebel. Yeah, no, I, I haven't read that book. And uh, believe me, it's not on my list. Been a really hot seller because I dive into these spiritual warfare issues, but not just with... Uh, scripture, which is very important, not just with practical experiences, which is also very important, but with the balance of the two and with revelation from the Holy Spirit, which is the ultimate importance. Yeah, did you catch that little part there here? Uh, Let me me replay that little litany here because it shows you where her – in theology, we talk about material and formal principles. Um, material principle being kind of the center of your theology. Formal principle, be, pr- principle being, you know, what do you consider to be authoritative in your religion? Uh, biblical Christianity, by the way, it's sola scriptura. God's word alone has authority, uh, but not in Jennifer LeClaire's religion. Um, in her religion, uh, the Bible is important. Um, uh, personal experience, it's important, but oh, you know what's at the top of the pyramid, the most important, that has the greatest authority. It's not the Bible. Yeah, listen again as she explains this to us. Because I dive into these spiritual warfare issues, but not just with uh, Scripture, which is very important. Yeah, Scripture, it's it's really important. Not just with practical experiences. Yeah, not not just practical experiences. They're important. You know, the, the practical experiences in the Bible, they're important, and they're kind of on the same level. But what's really important? Which is also very important, but with the balance of the two and with revelation from the Holy Spirit, which is the ultimate importance, okay? Right. So her direct revelations from God trump God's word and her personal experiences. And I, I can understand that um, personal experiences should not play into any theology whatsoever, actually. But uh, her direct revelations from God, they trump the written word of God. That's exactly what she just expressed there for us. We continue. 
Okay. Without revelation from the Holy Spirit, it's just man-made laws or man-made presumption, and we don't need. So, without revelation from the Holy Spirit, just reading your Bible is man-made laws. Um, you seem very confused uh, to me, Jennifer. Need any of that here? So, let's dive into a, a, a new article that I wrote this week, and I want to sort of flesh it out here uh, on these weekly videos. I was talking about knowing when to shout and knowing when to stay silent. You can find that article on Charisma Magazine, charismamag.com, or on my website. Oh, I, I'm looking forward to this clarity that you're going to offer us. At jenniferleclair.org. It's very important. You know, I was reading uh, Exodus, and I, I was reading through the scripture, and I noticed there was a time where God said to stay silent. But then I remember other times in scripture where God said to shout. And so I started, you know, I got this revelation, you know, you got to know when to stay silent. You got a revelation. Hang on a second here. Ah! Wait a second. Am I, am I doing it wrong? Should I be silent right now? I'm so confused. When to shut up, if I can just be blunt about it. You know, when it comes to spiritual warfare strategies, there is Uh, No one size fits all. There's no one spiritual warfare strategy. Yes, we use the name of Jesus. Yes, we can plead the blood. But we need discernment. We need a strategy from the Holy Spirit. You know, David used to always ask before he went to battle, shall I go up? So we need a strategy from the Holy Spirit given to you so that we can learn how to properly apply shouting or silence in spiritual warfare scenarios. Mm Mm-hmm. Don't you think that uh, if this is really what God the Holy Spirit wanted us to know and these strategies, he wanted us to employ them in spiritual warfare uh, situations and scenarios, that he'd just tell us in the written word? Why would he go to you and give you this this keen insight to sort this important strategy thing out um, rather than just give it to the whole church and reveal it in his word so that we can all benefit from it that way? And so he needed that, that, that witness that he was supposed to run to the battle line. He needed that strategy. And so when it comes to these spiritual warfare strategies uh, in this section, in this article, I'm talking about where there's a time to shout and a time to be silent. And discerning the difference, discerning the difference can deliver you from the hand of your enemy or can deliver the enemy into your hand. You've got to discern when to stay silent and when to shout. All right? When to stay silent and when to shout. Now, See, I see. I'm of the opinion that you've probably already botched this whole thing. Yeah. See, by doing this video and writing that article, you are, were probably speaking when you should have been silent. Yeah. I just that's what I'm thinking. Listen. Although there's spiritual laws and and kingdom principles, you need to know when to operate in which law. And when to apply which principle. That's the, the basic nutshell of this article, of this video. You've got to know when to do what. And, and again, you learn this directly from God the Holy Spirit, really. Unfortunately, we often shout when we should remain silent. And we often remain silent when we should be shouting. And we wonder why the enemy's not fleeing. We wonder why we haven't gotten the victory yet. And this is only one reason why. There's many reasons why we... Right. So maybe one of the reasons why you haven't experienced victory in your spiritual warfare scenarios is because you've inappropriately shouted when you should have stayed silent. When Or worse, you, should, you were silent when you should have shouted. If only we had Jennifer LeClaire to clear you, you know, to actually, you know, 
fix this problem before you ever had it, then, you know, you wouldn't have had such a delay in your victory. We may not be seeing the victory. It may just be, uh, you know, we have to wait for God's timing. But in this particular article, I want to talk about knowing when to shout and knowing when to stay silent. Because here's the deal. If, if you shout when you should remain silent, you could find yourself fighting in the power of your flesh. And I don't care how. Oh, yeah, you wouldn't want to do that. Oh, mighty you are and how much you've died to self uh, you're not going to defeat the enemy in your flesh uh you know it's not going to work uh you know our weapons are not carnal okay they're not fleshly they're mighty through god to the pulling down of strongholds and we know that from scripture paul taught us that and he taught that to the church at corinth and it's there for us to see our weapons are not carnal but they're mighty through god to the pulling down of strongholds casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of god so if you remain silent when you should shout you could be neglecting those spiritual weapons that will cut your enemies to bits so again on the one hand if you shout when you should remain silent could find yourself warring in the flesh if you remain silent when you should shout you could be neglecting your supernatural weapons now are you sure you were talking to god the holy spirit when you got this i mean it it, it this sounds to me like you know you know i don't know how often this happens nowadays i mean back in the day okay you know when i was a young lad i mean i grew up in the 70s and 80s and you know we actually had rotary dial phones before we had the push button phones and man the push button phones were awesome i mean it was really exciting but in both scenarios um the the occasional misdial would happen so you know you get on the phone to call a friend or a family member and you just you know you do the world thing and you know and you and you misdialed and 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 so you know you hear the phone ringing and then all of a sudden the person picks up and you go hey is is johnny there and you go and the person says there's there's no johnny here you've dialed the wrong number it's like oh man Okay, you know, and so and I don't think this happens as often nowadays because we've got everybody on speed dial on our cell phones and stuff. So, I mean, I can't remember the last time I dialed the wrong number, but I see, I'm just wondering, I mean, is it possible here that, you know, Jennifer LeClaire, you know, she misdialed the, the, the number to the Holy Spirit and and accidentally connected with like you know the forces of evil you know and and so rather you know cuz that's see that's the thing when you when you misdial and you and you accidentally connect with the forces of evil because you know satan is a liar and a deceiver he he's not gentlemanly enough to say hey listen you called the wrong number i know you're trying to talk to god the holy spirit but yeah, listen, you, you got a hold of the Lord of Darkness instead. Hey, see, he doesn't do that, you know, and, and so what will happen is, is that, you know, you misdial in a situation like that. You know, the devil on the other line probably goes, yeah, this is the Holy Spirit. <laughs> what would you like to know? You know, oh, I'm so glad I got a hold of you, Holy Spirit. You know, I, you know, listen, I've been thinking about this whole thing about spiritual warfare and, you know, why is it, why that we don't have the victory when we want it and, and, and we should be able to shred the the devil in, in, into tiny little bits and it, it's just not working for me. And, and, you know, and so the devil disguised as the Holy Spirit says, oh, yeah, yeah. Have you considered uh, that maybe you're shouting when you're, you should be silent and that you're being silent when you should be Shouting, shout! Oh, I had never thought of that. Oh yeah, yeah, that's really the problem. And then you hang up, and and you know, and you, and then you go make a video like this, not realizing that you, really what happened is you dialed the wrong number. 
All right. We're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Uh, the uh, trailer for the new Jesus film, not to be confused with, confused with the Son of God film, as well as a Jensen Franklin update. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Broadcasting from his mother's basement while in a beanbag eating Cheetos. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater proudly presents Sessions with Mildred. Um, Mr. Sunshine, your three o'clock appointment is here. Oh, good. Send them right on in. Will do, Mr. Sunshine. Oh, dear, I've completely forgotten who I'm meeting. Let's just see who it is. Let's see. Oh, yes. Uh, Mr. Brightweight was at one o'clock. Miss Woodhead was at two. And at three, we have... No. Hello. Ah! Oh dear, not again. Sorry about that. It was merely a reflex action. I'm trying to get that fixed. So, anyway, why are you here today? I was assigned to you again after my attitude didn't improve last time. Did you forget already? It must be because you don't like me. Of course I don't! Uh, uh, hate you! Nobody hates you here! We all love it when you're not around! I, 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 I mean, uh... <laughs> Let's get down to business. We're here to discuss how you performed in our newest Lead Like Jesus program. I'll just pull up the complaint file here. <laughs> Let's start from the beginning. Approximately three hours later. So after you failed to walk on the lake, you then disappeared for two weeks and were luckily found by hikers in the mountain who claim they found you deliriously raving about how you refused to turn a rock into Bread, do you have anything to say for yourself? But I thought I was leading like Jesus, like you told me to. <sighs> I think you failed to see the purpose of this ministry outreach. There are a few accounts that even I can't even understand. Here, explain this one right here. Well, in Matthew 21, Jesus cursed a fig tree and it withered away because it didn't bear any fruit. So my neighbor down the street planted a lemon tree about three years ago. 
and I've never seen any lemons on it. So I walked over and cursed it, but it wouldn't die, so I used sulfuric acid instead. What are you doing to my tree? You maniac! Get out of my yard! Uh... What? Why is my tree melting? Sir, do you have a moment to talk about the Lead Like Jesus program? No, I don't have time to... Stop changing the subject! Get off my lawn! Stop! 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 I, I get it! Okay, how on earth did you get banned for life from the local soup kitchen? Well, remember the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew chapter 14? Yes, we all know the story. You don't mean to tell me. Well... All right, Mildred, we have a large shipment of food that just came in. We need you to direct the men to put it where it all belongs. Right. Where do you want it all? Oh, sir, we don't need your food today. I'm just going to leave like Jesus and have God provide these people with food. What? If you don't mind me saying, but I think God provided all the food on this heavily laden truck. It's okay. My pastor had a vision that this would work. Well, that settles it. Men, we've got the wrong place. We thought this was a soup kitchen, but it turns out that this is a loony bin. Add out! Uh, Mildred, where's the food? Don't worry, this is all the food we need. That's just two Ritz crackers and three dead goldfish. I'm leading like Jesus. If you just give me a wicker basket, I'll lift it up and God will multiply it. The only thing that's going to multiply is the number of bruises on your face. Good gravy! That's not what you're supposed to be doing at all! But I'm supposed to... I know! You're supposed to lead like Jesus, but you've clearly took this too literally. And this last one about you making a whip from electrical cords and chasing the poor baristas from the coffee shop in the church foyer while screaming something about brood of vipers and uh, turning God's house into a den of robbers is, is taking it too far. Wow. No, not again. No more flashbacks. Why do you keep getting these anyway? Sunshine, open up. This is the police. We received an anonymous phone call from biblical repairmen about you corrupting the youth and forcing them to do terrible things in the name of God. Curse you, anonymous caller! I can't go back to prison! You'll never take me alive, coppers! Um, does this mean our session is over? Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, 
we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, it's sola scriptura. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable to make you, you know, equipped for everything that God would call you to. This is what scripture says. You don't need so-called pseudo-prophets like LeClaire. Anyway, just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month. That's it, to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. And of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Now, I'm not going to play the, uh, you know, change the world music here. I just want you to hear the <clears throat> the theology in the 35-year-old Jesus film. And yes, I understand that Jesus in this film has a British accent. Okay, now somebody asked me today, why is it that these old movies about Jesus, the guy always have, has a British accent? I think the answer is simple. Uh, because if he had a southern accent, people would think that Jesus was a redneck. I, I just think it's that simple. Guys with British accents sound like they're intelligent. Guys with southern accents, that's not what they're known for. So I think that's what that's what the idea here is. But uh, so aside from the fact that historically we can say with certainty that Jesus did not have a British accent, don't make that the issue. The, the, the question is, what's the theology of this movie? And again, they're getting ready to re-release it uh, on its 35th anniversary in high def. And uh, got to tell you, I'm impressed with the theology of this thing by comparison to what we got from the, uh, the Son of God movie and the Bible miniseries. In fact, my contention is in the next two minutes, you're going to hear more sound biblical theology and a correct understanding of why Jesus came to earth than you will in the entire Son of God movie as well as the entire Bible miniseries. Here now is the trailer for the forthcoming 35th anniversary HD edition of the Jesus film. Here we go. Before my eyes have seen your salvation, this child is chosen by God. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the writings of the prophets and the Psalms had to come true. In his name, the message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins must be preached to all nations. Stop, stop, stop. St- oh, come on. 23 s- seconds into this film and we're already hearing about repentance and the forgiveness of sins? We didn't hear about any of that in the entire Bible miniseries put out by Roma and uh, Burnett. Hmm. Mm, I like this. The winding roads must be made straight and the rough paths made was John the Baptist. Wow, what a message. And all will see God's salvation. 
This very day, your savior was born. Your savior was born. What? We need a savior? What are these people thinking? You can't talk that way today in the church. He is Christ the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has chosen me to bring good news to the poor. Hang on a second. You see, you can't see what I just saw. I just saw the storm, okay? So the disciples are in the boat, and there's the storm, and Jesus calms the storm, and it miraculously, you know, the storm calms. And get this. There was not a single woman in the boat. No kidding. There is not a 13th female disciple running around in this movie. What are these people thinking? Exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. The Lord bless you and keep you and teach all nations in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And you got the Trinity in the trailer? No, you can't do this today. Haven't these people gotten the memo from like Bill Hybels and Rick Warren and the gang that you're not supposed to discuss any of that sound biblical theology stuff that divides people? How are they expecting this movie to be a blockbuster? He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and announce that the time has come when the Lord will save his people. How happy are those who have no doubts about me. shall be a house of prayer and you have turned it into a den of thieves the messiah must suffer and rise from the dead on the third day ask and you will receive seek and you will find how happy are those who hear the word of god and obey well, there you go. Okay, so um, coming out in April, the uh, high-definition edition of the Jesus film, rated G, uh-huh, and, uh, and uh, <laughs> rated G for good theology and rated S for sound doctrine, you know, as opposed to, uh, you know, the, uh, the Son of God, rated H for heresy. Anyway, so there you go. I mean, in two minutes, you heard more sound biblical theology and the real reason why Jesus came than you did in the entire Bible miniseries and the Son of God movie. I think the comparison is, um, well, how shall we say it? Uh, stark. Anyway, moving along. That's right. Time for a money-grubbing televangelist update. Don't want no kissing. Don't want no gal to call me honey. Don't want my name in the Hall of Fame. Just want a big fat pile of money. Give me that almighty dollar for that lettuce. Hear me holler. Give me buckets full of ducats. Let me walk around and waller in Mazuma. Elder Nero, want to be a millionaire. Give me money, 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 money. That green ammunition, that's the stuff for which I'm wishing. Fill my closets with deposits, I'm a demon in addition. Give me shekels, give me pesos, let me see their smiling faces. Money, 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 money. Wanna get me a suit that's made out of oof and whistle for wearing it green. I got that monetary itis like speeches like King Midas. Want that golden touch is what I mean. Give me that old double eagle. Want that tender that is legal and financially substantially. And there's some I can and beagle. Want a living regal splendor for that loving legal tender. Money, 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 money. 
greenback collector. I'm a paper bill inspector. I'm a savage for that cabbage man. To me, is golden nectar. Pour that filthy lucre on me. Spread those loving germs upon me. Money, 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 money. And if they ever plant trees of enormous euros, I want to be the guy that they send out to prove That's right, Dr. Teeth and money, money, money. All right, so we're, this is, uh, that's in uh, honor of Jensen Franklin. And what you're about to hear from Jensen Franklin uh, recently broadcast on the Trinity Broadcasting Network. And this is the power of, um, well, now. Mm-hmm. And supposedly he's exegeting the, uh, the story of Jesus' miraculous turning of water into wine at the wedding feast of Cana in John chapter 2. If, in fact, if you want to open up your Bible, uh, go ahead and open up to the Gospel of John chapter 2 and follow along, and I will be correcting him from the biblical text to kind of point out the fact that he's missing the whole point. Uh, here's Jensen Fra- Franklin to discuss the power of now. John chapter 2, you know, it's the story of Jesus turning the water into wine. And then the governor of the feast says that he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn from the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside, verse 10. And he said, everyone who brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best Till now. For years, I've heard preachers preach and have even done it myself. He's, we, we misquote it. And yeah, actually, that's not the punchline of this text. Um, why are you preaching it as if that's kind of like the whole point of the text is like the word now? Hmm, we got a problem. Let me let him spin this out a little bit farther. We say he saved the best for last. That is not what he said. He said he saved the best for now. Because when you say he saved the best for last, it's, it's almost like that's, if we're not careful, we live our life that way. That it's always out there somewhere. Uh, this has nothing to do with how we live our life. What are you talking about? Um, yeah, that's not what this passage is about. Okay, let's take a look at it, though. Uh, Gospel of John, chapter 2. I'll start at verse 1, and we're going to apply our three rules for sound biblical exegesis, and they are context Context and context. Yeah, that's right. Those are our three rules. Now, the majority, and I mean really the vast majority of bad Bible twisting gets cleared up immediately as soon as you put the passages in context. And that might require you to put like four or five verses before the verse being quoted and maybe four or five after. Okay. Uh, in this particular uh, case, in the Gospel of John, we have a story that works as a unit. And there's a real punchline to this, uh, to this story. And it's not the verse that ends with the word now. Yeah, the punchline of the Gospel of John chapter 2, at least the story of the wedding feast uh, in in, Cana of Galilee where Jesus turns water into wine, the punchline is a little bit after the now um, word. Mm -hmm. Let me uh, read it to you. You'll see what I'm talking about. Here's what it says. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. You got to pay attention to those third day things when it comes to Jesus. Uh, it's telegraphing that something important is about to take place. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. 
And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jew, uh, Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons of water. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up with, to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it had come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor then the poor wine. You know, Stinky Pete comes out after your taste buds are, are gone here. Um, but you have kept the good wine until now. Now notice here, um, the, uh, the, guy, the master of the feast, he had no clue that a miracle had taken place. And his comment had nothing to do with the miraculous or something to do with your life or anything like that. He's commenting on the fact that, uh, you know, that this is unheard of. Nobody saves the best wine until this late. You're doing this backwards. That was his point, okay? But that's not the punchline of the story. The story continues. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And here's the punchline. And his disciples believed in him. And his disciples believed believed in him. Now, in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, we have the thesis statement of why the Gospel of John was written. In fact, you can even think of this as the thesis statement for all of the Bible. Here's what it says. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, notice here in the story of, of, the, of Jesus turning the, the water into wine, this miracle resulted in a very important thing. In fact, it res- resulted in the very thing that John wants to have happen to his readers. Here's what it says. This, verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. That's right. And something I should point out from the uh, Gospel of John chapter 20, that thesis statement there, um, is that what's what's being discussed here is not only just, just you coming to faith, but this idea that you continue in the faith. These things are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that you believe and continue believing that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you have life in his name. So the whole point of that miracle is so that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in his name. That's the point of that miracle. That was the point, and his disciples, it says, they believed in him. Aha, that's why he did it. So it has nothing to do with the the master of the wedding feast saying the word now, RT in Greek. Um, so let's see what um, Jensen Franklin then does with this, see if he ever ever comes to the conclusion, oh, whoa, wait a second, this has nothing to do with now anything. This has to do with believing in Jesus. That the blessing, the revival, the move of God, the miracle that you need, the, the answer to prayer is always out there. And his best is coming one day, someday, way out there. He saved the best for last. I've heard all of my life there's a last day revival coming. 
and I'm going to live and die, and if I keep... Uh, this has nothing to do with any last day's revivals coming or anything like that. Looking for something out there, I don't know if I'm going to see it, but I can tell you, he doesn't just save the best for last. He can do that if he wants to. He's God, but he saved the best for now. The power of now. Um, we need to be careful that we're not living 10 years out there. One day, someday, we can have victory now. We can have, we are having revival now. We are seeing life. This has, again, John chapter 2 and the master of the wedding feast saying, you save the best till now, has nothing to do with any revival that may or may not be happening anywhere in the world today. What are you talking about? Has changed now. But sometimes, you know, it's almost like we just get to thinking that it's out there. It's out there somewhere. But the enemy wants to distract us from the fact of the power of believing and standing and trusting right now is where victory comes from. You have kept the good wine until now. The great days are not behind us. The great days are not behind the church. The great days are not behind you. The great days are not someday, way out there, somewhere. The great days, he saved the best for right now. The best young people, right now. The best churches, right now. The best move of the Spirit, right now. God is that uh, kind of God. Yeah, how is it you're saying he saved the best churches till like right now? In the context of you actually butchering and gutting the Gospel of John chapter 2 and the story of the wedding feast uh, at Cana and Galilee and Jesus turning water into wine, you completely missed the whole point of this. And yet you're saying that, you know, that God has saved the best churches till now. And I'm assuming that would include you think that your church is included in that. How could your church be one of the best churches that God has saved until now when you're twisting God's word? Uh. He's not the God of the past, and he's not a God who's sitting around waiting to show he's great someday. The, your Bible said he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means if we would comprehend the power of now, we wouldn't have to wait, but he's now. Um, yeah, again, you're really missing the whole point because... This has nothing to this text has nothing to do with the power of now. It has everything to do with the power of Jesus over creation itself. Who ever heard of a man being able to turn water into wine? That's quite the miracle. Moses turned water into blood. In fact, the entire Nile River. Okay? And that you know it resulted in judgment. But here Jesus turns water into wine. And by the way, Moses would be the first to tell you it wasn't him who turned the water of the Nile into blood, that it was God, Yahweh himself, who did it. Okay, so we're not talking about the power of now. We're talking about the power of God. You, I mean, you're completely missing the point. Presently, God and revival in his spirit is here. You have kept the good wine until now. The devil wants you always looking down the road. Someday, someday, I'm going, I'm going to quit 
you know, taking drugs. Someday I'm going to get right with God. Someday we're going to get our marriage fixed. Someday we're going to, you know, uh, we're going to get through these problems. Someday I'm going to take time for my children. Someday, 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 someday. But someday I'm going to Bible. I'm going to get a Bible commentary and actually learn how to uh, properly understand what a biblical text is saying. But the power is right now. Right now is all that you have. Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> you see, see I, at the moment, I'm trying to figure out, should I be shouting or staying silent? You know, because this is definitely a spiritual warfare context. Oh, what was that direct revelation that uh, uh, LeClaire got again? Now is the key to releasing miracles in your life. Did you know that when you spell the word now backwards, it's one? And when you say now, the battle is already won. I'm going to praise now, not when I see a change. I'm going to trust God. Really, you're going to make a point that the word now turned backwards says won. W-O-N, like I've won something. That's your great big point here. Uh, really? Wow. Not now, not when I understand. Do you know that when I say wow, and then I turn it and I actually spell it backwards, that wow backwards spells wow? Whew. That's a deep one there. Think about it. And everything, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe God now, not when the manifestation comes. Because when you decide to say now, then suddenly the... He's not talking about anything related to the actual text that he read. What was the point of actually reading the text? Just to get the word now? Bible said it like this in Hebrews 11. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. <laughs> Yes, that's right. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. And the way he said it, now faith, not then faith or future faith. It's now faith. Oh, man, this is horrifyingly bad. The definition of faith is not someday. <laughs> Why are they not pelting you with tomatoes and dung? That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard someday i'm believing someday no now faith is now i'm praising god for it now i'm rejoicing for it now i'm enjoying my life now i'm going to live this day this is all i have promised there's no guarantee contract for any of you to show up tomorrow alive I, i'm gonna go real crazy now this is the best church service you'll ever be in for <laughs> really, best church service you'll ever be in. I, I feel like I'm watching a stand-up comedy routine. Please tell me this is satire. For sure. Well, someday we're going to really have a great church service. This is the best for you, for all you know. You're not promised next Sunday. You're not promised Wednesday night. You're not promised a month from now. You're not promised anybody's conference you're signed up to go to. This is really all you have is this one opportunity, this one service, this one. This is it. And knowing that this was going to be their one opportunity, you decided to twist God's word and teach uh, false doctrine and miss the whole point. Yeah, again, the, the Bible's written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name. That's the point of that story. The disciples believed in him as a result of that miracle. And you've turned this into 
complete and utter nonsense, knowing that the only thing they have right now is now and they don't have anything else. You've squandered the now moment. And rather than teach sound doctrine, you've taught lies and completely missed the point. Yeah, that makes no sense to me at all. What do you think? All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, a sermon review, a relationship sermon. Again, probably not good for little ears. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. Let's do this right, though. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us via shoreline church destin florida justin and trisha davis presiding the name of the sermon series is called i give it a year 
And the name of the sermon is it be, is entitled Beyond Ordinary. Now, as we listen to this um, sermon, um, ask yourself this question. I'll ask it along the way so you won't have to remember it. Um, are you going to actually open a Bible? Yeah. What we're going to hear, at least what I've heard so far, and I haven't finished the sermon, is... Um, pretty much an exegesis or a grand retelling of the um, first year, first weeks of the uh, marriage between Justin and Trisha Davis. This is not what pastors are supposed to be preaching. They're supposed to be preaching the Word of God. So let me go ahead and kill the music. And without any further ado, here again, here is Justin and Trisha Davis and their sermon entitled Beyond Ordinary, here we go. Well, hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to Shoreline. My name is Justin, and this is my wife, Trish, and we are from Nashville, Tennessee. We're so excited to be here with you guys this weekend and share a little bit of our story and really kind of just help, hopefully help you move beyond ordinary in your life. And uh, if you're new to uh, Shoreline, haven't been here before, you can follow along with the message today at Shoreline Live. Dot com, right? Is that right? Shorelinelive.com. All right. And so you can follow along the message with us there. That'd be awesome to do that. Well, just a little bit about us before we kind of dive into our talk uh, today. Um, we are from Nashville, as I said, and um, we have three boys, and uh, they are at home with my mom this weekend. And so pray for my mom. Um, but our oldest uh, son, Micah, is 17, uh, soon to be 18, which is really, really sad. We had him when we were nine. And um, our, uh, our middle son is uh, Elijah, and he's 15, almost 15. And uh, our youngest is Isaiah, and he's 11. And we never really set out to have prophets as sons. It just kind of happened that way. And, um, and so if you uh, think about it today, just think, man, I need to pray for the Davises because I hope that their house is still standing when they get home. That would be awesome. Uh, but uh, that's a little bit about our family, and we're going to kind of share our story with you uh, today and then kind of hopefully make some application at the end of the talk today. So maybe you came and you're thinking, oh my gosh, they're speaking on marriage. I'm not married. I don't know if I can listen to this. So we just want you to take a deep breath. And all Now there's a Bible on the table. I don't know if or when it'll actually be opened and the sermon will actually begin. What follows is the gory details of their wedding, wedding night, and honeymoon. Brace yourselves, like I said, um, little ears, maybe not so much. Oh, we are going to share our marriage story. Why? Why are you going to share your marriage story? That's not an appropriate topic for a biblical sermon. Hope is that you will glean wherever you find yourself. If you're single, married, single again, that you will um, hear, hopefully from God, a, a truth that applies. Uh, hopefully from God. Yeah, yeah, I don't have much confidence that I'm going to. Your life. But it's so funny as we were watching that video, the Ken and Barbie, like, isn't that spot on of what we think life is going to be like? And I, you know, if you're eight or you're 80, we're all dreamers, right? We have big dreams. We don't step into life and think, gosh, man, when I graduate from high school, I hope that I go to a really lame college. Listen to this theology. It is seeker-driven, dream, big dreams, have a big vision for your life theology in spades. 
And not only do I hope I go to a lame college, I hope that I pay all this money for a degree and my degree is like super boring, right? We we don't think that way. We think I want my life to be this epic adventure. And Justin and I were no different. We met at... want my life to be this epic adventure. Um, How is that Christian sanctification? college, which was a miracle in the first place, uh, fell in love not only with each other, um, but with this idea that God would use this crazy couple united really from a point of just dating to finally becoming married to change the world. To change the world. Uh, so this is the purpose-driven change the world theology. Boy, yeah, they're steeped in it, aren't they? Local church. We love the local church. And so... Ladies, let's just be honest. We dream big dreams when we are little, but the biggest dream we dream about is our wedding day. It doesn't matter. Sometimes one day it's outside. Sometimes it's inside. Sometimes the groom is different. We don't know. But when you're engaged, you dream big dreams. And Justin and I were no different. So we got married. Uh, Let me just ask this. Any of you get married in the 90s? Yeah. See, People don't raise their hands because if you got married in the 90s, that meant big bedazzled dress. In fact, we've got a picture of my dress. If you look at it, my veil, you know those desert lizards that get really mad and they're like, that was my veil. Like people could not get close to me without getting their eye poked out. It was a really sad, sad thing. But that was the vision. That was the dream I had for my or our wedding day. That was the vision. That was the dream. Notice, again, reinforcing the purpose-driven vision, dream, change the world theology thing. It was more like mine. That's fine. But even bigger than our wedding day in my ginormous bedazzled dress was this epic honeymoon. Like, our honeymoon was going to be the biggest, the most awesome, audacious vacation you could ever go on. And Justin and I grew up in families that were kind of lower middle income, so Collectively, we had gone on two family vacations, and the one vacation Justin had gone on was to Holden Beach, North Carolina. So he was bent that our epic adventure would be at Holden Beach. So we were so excited. We get through the ceremony, and we are stoked that his parents allowed us to borrow their brand new, ever to them, brand new car. It was an Astro minivan, a 1995 Astro minivan, the dream. We are living it. Yes, but we joke that I needed that big old van for the big old dress, you know, so like any bride and groom, we get in the minivan, all sexy-like, and people are going crazy honking horns, and we thought, I'm from Chicago, Justin's from Indianapolis, Indiana, we get married in Chicago, we pretty much are sure that you shouldn't drive 17 hours on the night of your honeymoon, right? So we decided we'll be smart, and we'll just stay at a hotel about two hours, three hours away. So we're in this van. People are honking. We're like, righteous. We just got married. It's great. Don't we look great? And then about an hour later, we stop. In another hour, we're still stopped. And now by hour four, my poor groom looks over and is a little nervous about the woman he just married because I look at him and I say, listen, if one more person honks their horn at me because I'm in this dress, I'm getting up out of this van and they going down. I know I got married. Move on people. And so what should have taken three hours ended up taking about six. The older we get, our kids say we make it bigger, but I think it was like six or seven hours. So by the time we got there, you know, the Barbie, Ken and Barbie carry me over the threshold. I was like, dude, you need to get to stepping because 
I need to get in there to go to sleep. And sleep was the operative word. I'm like, hey, I know it's four in the morning, but come on. Like, I can light some candles, throw on some Luther Vandross. Like, we can get this party started again. Like, hey, it's, it's early, right? Like, Why do you think that this is appropriate topic in the in story for you to be telling during a sermon in a Christian church. Your job, sir, is to preach the word. I didn't get married for sleep. I got married for some action. And uh, Trisha wasn't really all about the action. Right. So, so much. I was in the restroom and he's like, okay, I've got Luther Vandross playing. Let's, you know, and he knocks on the door and he realizes that I'm not just crying. I am sobbing. And through my sobs, I say to him, I need you to go to Walmart's right now. I'm like, Walmart? Why would I go to Walmart in my tux at 21 years old at four o'clock in the morning on my wedding night? Well, apparently as we arrived at the hotel, something else arrived for Trish. So here I am at four o'clock in the morning on my wedding night. I walked two aisles that day, one to say I do, the other to say I'm not so sure. And so you know you're in a bad place. When the person working the 4 a.m. shift at Walmart feels sorry for you, right? And so I, I, I get to the counter. I throw the feminine products on the, on the thing there. And the lady looks at me. She's like, you just coming from prom, honey? I'm like, just check me out, please. I just want to go. And so I get back to the hotel. And sure enough, I was asleep. No action. So before you feel bad for him. No, feel bad for me, please. God's word says that his mercies are new every morning. So we got up the next day. We headed to the beach. We finally got there hours and so hours. So we got a quick mention. You know, we, oh, we just threw in a Bible verse here. God's mercies are new every morning. Oh, okay. So that's the biblical teaching portion of the sermon so far? Later. And we were so excited that we literally just dropped our bags and headed for the beach. Now, something you should know about me that I'm sure you thought as soon as I stepped on the stage is that I'm Hispanic, right? <laughs> My maiden name is Lopez. And so although I'm a light-skinned Latino, I don't ever remember burning. But you all know something down in the South that I didn't. The sun is different. Like, it's really different. And so after three hours of being out on the beach, playing in the water, I was blistered from head to toe. And this epic adventure, this huge dream, the Ken like and when Barbie she, dream. When she says blistered from head to toe, like we're talking like, don't touch me blistered. Like the only thing that was touching her body was aloe vera. Okay. And so not for one day, not for two days, for three days, you know, you're in a bad place on your honeymoon when you call your dad collect. Cause that's what you do in 1995. You know, you're in a bad place when you're in a church and this is the sermon. Uh, you call collect, right? And you're talking about your lack of sex on your honeymoon with your father. That's a bad honeymoon. There's no epic adventure there at all. And my dad's like, you know, we're not even Catholic, but I think you could annul that. Just like fist bump, walk away. Our bad, right? Like, sorry about that. It's been 18 years. I'm still, I need some counseling. That's what I'm talking about. Okay. So before you feel bad for him again, I will say at the very end of our honeymoon, we had all of this money because we couldn't go anywhere that we decided to rent a jet ski. 21-year-old groom, pent-up energy on a jet ski. And this is where you realize, and you know this all happens if you're married, who the rule follower is and who the rule breaker is. We get on this jet ski. I get on behind him. I'm like, I would like to go through the rules of engagement. And he's like, huh? And before I could say anything else, my, you know, whip your hair back and forth. My hair was all over the place. And then it happened. I call it the 48-hour moment. You know when you're watching TV, 48 hours, the mystery, it's unfolding, and you're, you're screaming at the TV? You're like, girl, run. He knew better. Like, just come on. You, you should be able to see the bigger picture. 
This was this moment because time stopped. And all of a sudden I realized that Justin is looking out in the cove and this huge party yacht, you guys have party yachts here coming into the cove people, there's music, people are dancing and tons of excitement. And then he catches the excitement and he's like, it's producing waves waves, jet ski, it's on. And as I try to say, no, we full fledged hit this wave that I go flying so high in the air. I'm not lying. I was like, what's up to the people on the yacht, you know? And as I got their attention, all of a sudden I just heard, oh my, and then belly flop right into the water. And when I came up out of, you're enjoying this. I am. I, I, I am. All I, of I, my I, blisters I, had popped. So I look more like a battered wife than a beautiful bride. And so, I was like, payback. I mean, I didn't say it out loud. I was just thinking it silently in my mind. So if you're engaged, I'm sorry. Um, if you're getting ready to go on your honeymoon, I promise it's not always that bad. But here's the reality. You know that if you've been in any relationship for just a short amount of time, especially when you get married, that the dreams we have, this epic, the couples on the couch, one, at some point, they stood before one another saying, I love you, I do, till death do us part. But then life starts to happen. Life starts to unfold, and jet skis are still being had, and the moments aren't that light and funny anymore. They're becoming heavier. They're becoming more difficult. So what do you do when the dreams become sometimes your worst nightmare? So here we are, newlyweds, and we got married the summer before my second senior year of college. Anybody else squeeze uh, four years? Please tell me that you're going to stop with the personal stories and actually open up the Bible and teach a biblical text in context and bring Christ and him crucified for our sins into this because uh, I believe Jesus bled and died for several things that you've already discussed from your own personal life. The five like me? Oh, yeah. We like student loans, right? And, uh, and so we got married the summer before my, my senior year of college. And so here we are, newlyweds, and, and just love, you know, we're still college students, and we're completely broke, but we're in love, and we feel like, you know what? We love God. We love each other. This is going to be awesome. It's going to be epic. And then four months into our wedding, or into our marriage, we realized, you know what? Trish doesn't have the flu like we thought she did. She's pregnant. And so my voice still cracks when I say that out loud. And uh, who knew that birth control was counteracted by antibiotics? Not us. That's free for some of you today, okay? You can just take that with you. No charge, all right? And uh, so that's, that's what happened. And so here we are, newlyweds in college, and we're going to be new parents, and I'm going to graduate in a few months and get my very first student ministry. And we had this vision that, you know what? We love God. We love each other. It's just going to work out. It's just going to be okay. God's got this. And so over the next seven years, we would go from student ministry to student ministry because we had this passion. We had this belief that God was going to use us. Yeah, I know, I, just something I've noticed that this, these stories, they don't appear anywhere in the Bible. Uh-huh. So how am I supposed to actually learn anything about God's word from your stories? To change the world through the local church. Change the world through the local church. Got to back that up because that's the second time we've heard that statement. And it's creeping me out. And that, you know what? We love God. We love each other. It's just going to work out. It's just going to be okay. God's got this. And so over the next seven years, we would go from student ministry to student ministry because we had this passion. We had this belief that God was going to use us to change the world through the local church. To change the world. There we go again. Change the world. Purpose-driven theology and the false purpose-driven Great Commission. (sighs) Ah. We continue.
a few months and get my very first student ministry. And we had this vision that, you know what? We love God. We love each other. It's just going to work out. It's just going to be okay. God's got this. And so over the next seven years, we would go from student ministry to student ministry because we had this passion. We had this belief that God was going to use us to change the world through the local church. But we knew in our heart that God had laid on our heart uh, this vision to plant a church. And so in uh, June of 2002, we sold everything that we owned, and we had five. So there you go. They're visionary leaders, just like Stephen Furtick and Perry Noble and all the others. ...dollars to our name, which really just means we didn't own a lot of stuff. And um, we moved from Nashville, Tennessee, to the north side of Indianapolis to start a church for people who didn't go to church. And we knew four people in the town, and we had, as I said, $5,000 in the bank. And our vision was, by the time we run out of money, we should have a church up and going which sounds very faith-filled. It's stupid, okay? I never recommend starting a church that way, but that was the vision that we had. And uh, Pastor Eric, you'll know this, as as a church planner, like you look for any sign at all that God is in it, right? So we move on June the 1st. On June 9th, we had our very first service and 12 people showed up. And I'm thinking in my mind, oh my gosh, 12 people, 12 disciples. This is biblical. Like God is all over this thing, right? And, uh, and so the next week they came back. And over the next couple of months, our group of 12 turned into a group of 20. And, and a couple of churches in our area got behind us. And they began to give us space and resources and, and people. And they allowed me to speak at their church on Sunday morning. And in September of 2003, we launched public services. And over 300 people showed up. And it was it was amazing, not just because of the numbers, but God began to draw people who were far from him. God began to draw people who hadn't darkened the door of a church in a long time. And they started coming to our church and they found Christ and they found a home and community and they found acceptance and love and they found a second chance. And people were joining small groups and people were being baptized. They found a home and community. Okay. And they were going on mission trips. And over the next 18 months, God would grow our little church plant to over 750 people. As a church planner, you, you talk a lot about the book of Acts. It's this book in the New Testament that's the story of the first church. And it says over and over again all throughout the book of Acts that the people were in awe of the move of God. And it was like we had a front row seat to the work of God. It was like we were living out the book of Acts. We had all these dreams and all these plans. And, and we knew that God had this amazing call, not just on our marriage, but on our church. But even as things were going up and to the right with our church from 2002 to 2005, things were not going so well for Trish and I. The previous 10 years of marriage had taken a toll on us, and we had become really, really good ministry partners, and we had become really horrible marriage partners. And we still had it all together on Sunday, and we still looked the part, and we still said the right things, and we still acted the right way. But behind closed doors, we were drifting. I was drifting in my relationship with God, even as I led the church, and we were definitely drifting in our marriage relationship. I don't know if you've ever been in a place where you step into a dream, you step into life, and maybe you don't have this epic disaster honeymoon. Things actually are going well. And for Justin and I in ministry, especially with this church plant, statistically for um, pastors, when they plant a church from nothing, 80% of them fail. So the fact that our church wasn't just surviving, but it was thriving was huge. And in our heart and mind, from the very beginning of our relationship, and maybe you felt this way, maybe you still feel this way today, if I love God, 
and we love each other, then everything's going to work out. And in my heart and mind, we were serving God through the local church. Things were going gangbusters. And I was trying to love Justin, but in the midst of it, I just found myself taking a back seat. And I found myself being displaced. And so here, everything, people weren't just coming to our church from another church across the street. There were people who were coming to our church who had never darkened the door. Again, got to ask, how is this the appropriate subject of a Christian sermon when the job of a pastor is to preach the word? Of a church. Maybe hadn't been to a church service in a really long time. And so it was a sweet time. It was a, a, a multi-generational community. And so all of these things are happening. And maybe you've been there where you had this milestone, you had this achievement, and you just knew if it came into fruition and I was successful at it, if I had a great business, if I finally got through grad school, whatever that is for you, then, and I loved God through all of it, my life's going to be killer. But here I was in 2004, just in a, in a small room of 40 leaders from our church, which was a really big deal when it's not the church anymore. It's leaders who want to lead ministries within your church walls. And Justin is standing before them, and he is casting vision. And I'm, I can't even describe to you, like, it was electric. People were so excited to not only... He was casting what? Where does the Bible teach us to do that? be leading, but share their story about so-and-so and, and, and this person and their neighbor. And God was just on the move. But I was sitting in the back looking at Justin, looking at my husband, feeling like I didn't even recognize him anymore. And not only did I not recognize him anymore, I was bitter towards the fact that I felt like he gave more time and attention to them in the room than he did to me. And my heart took a really dark turn when I found myself having this conversation with God in the middle of all this greatness saying, God, you know, I came to partner with the bride of Christ, the church that you call the bride of Christ. And right now she feels like a mistress right now. It feels like I'm competing against her to be known. I'm competing against her for Justin's time and attention. And maybe you've been there where you've been at a crossroads where you know that in the next moments, you're either going to choose a path for, of healing or choose a path of destruction. And I wish that I could stand before you and say, you know what, I just went to God in prayer and it was awesome. And, and I just confessed because that's what I felt like he was asking me to do that. I needed to tell somebody. And I thought, how wacko would that sound? Like, who am I going to tell the pastor's wife? I'm going to go tell somebody that I'm jealous of the bride of Christ. I mean, that's crazy. And so I convinced myself of this lie that I just thought, you know what? I can just be a little bitter. I can be just a little angry towards Justin, a little bitter towards the church. But what I didn't know is that bitterness will always lend itself to become resentment. And resentment, it's like a cancer. It just starts to bleed over in everything, not just your marriage relationship, but how I related to my kids, how I related to my friends, my family. I mean, I played the part really well, but inside I was dying a slow death. So fast forward the next year, we celebrate our 10 year anniversary and we were so excited to kind of redeem our honeymoon because y'all know it needed to be redeemed that we decided to go on a cruise and it, it was awesome. Three days out in the ocean. And at that time you couldn't get any cell service, your laptops, they were like too heavy to even bring on the boat at that time. And we just fell in love with each other. It was like 
I had finally gotten Justin's attention, and I didn't have to fight against the church. I didn't have to fight against his cell phone. And I thought, we're going to make it. I could feel the bitterness in my heart kind of dissolving. Now, the weird part about this is that Jesus is standing outside the door of Shoreline Church during the sermon going, hello? Um, you guys are a Christian church. Can, can I come in, please? Um, yeah, uh, I have something that, you know, I'm supposed to tell you. Um, can, can you let me in, please? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And I thought, I'm going to be okay. But when we got back from that trip, as soon as we got back, I remember Justin's cell phone ringing, and I literally just freaked out. Like, I surprised myself because I just thought, we've, we've been under cell phone service for like five seconds, and I'm already competing for your time and attention. In another instant, I found myself having to choose in this next moment would I confess to Justin how I was feeling? Would I confess to somebody how I was feeling? Or would I choose to convince myself all over again that, you know what, I can just stay a little bitter in this moment? And that's exactly what I did. What I wasn't prepared for is how far and how fast and how dark my heart became with just over, not a year, but just within days, within months that made Justin and I drift so far apart that we couldn't even see each other. You know what the cruise allowed us to do is it allowed us to treat the symptom of our pain, but not really diagnose the pain itself. I mean, we changed our behavior for a few days, but neither of us changed our heart. And so there was this alarming gap between the marriage that we had and the marriage that we thought we would have. There, there was this alarming gap between the vision that we had for our relationship and the relationship that we were living out every single day. And the question is, what do you do with that gap? For, for some of you today, maybe there's a gap between the relationship that you have with God and the relationship you thought you would have with God when you became a Christian. And what you thought you signed up for, it just isn't playing out that way. Life isn't as easy as you thought it would be. Relationships aren't as easy as you thought they would be. Your career hasn't taken the turn that you thought it would take. And so there's this, there's this gap between who you thought you would be five years ago and who you actually are. Maybe for some of you, it is your marriage relationship. And even as you sit here today, you know that there's a gap between the marriage that you dreamed about and the marriage that you're living out. How do, what do you do with that gap? How do you reconcile that gap? You see, Trish and I had this naive belief that the longer that we were married, the better our marriage would be. I think we all believe that, don't we? Our society kind of sells us that. And, you know, that's why we see a 50-year-old couple on a park bench feeding ducks. You think, oh my gosh, that is so sweet. They're so amazing. They're so in love. They may not even been sleeping in the same bedroom for the last 20 years, but we just assume longer married equals better marriage. That's why we watch The Notebook. Right? Let's see, they died in the same hospital bed together. Oh my gosh! Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the notebook, that's how it ends, okay? Sorry about that. Guys, I just saved you two and a half hours. You're welcome. Um, (laughs) But we think longer married equals better marriage, but longer married didn't equal better marriage for Trish and I. Longer married meant more irritable. Longer married meant less patience. Longer married meant more fighting. Longer married meant longer grudges. Longer married meant louder voices. Longer married meant the same argument over and over and over again. And so we moved from the cruise 
because our hearts didn't change right back into the same behavior patterns that we had before we left. And all this culminated on October 9th, 2005. I came home from church, and Trisha just led worship that morning, and I just spoke on the importance of godly relationships. And I sat down on the edge of the bed as Trish began to take a nap, and I said, hey, we need to have a conversation. And she said, okay, about what? I said, about us. She said, what about us? I said, I'm done. She's like, you're done with what? And I said, I'm done with you. Like, I'm out. I don't want to be married anymore. I'm not in love with you. I'm not sure I want a relationship with God. I'm having an affair. It's with your best friend. And I want to build a life with her. And even as I stand here eight years later, I wish it was a confession of remorse. I wish it was a confession of repentance. It was simply a confession of resignation. I was done. When we first got married, we were really good at fighting for each other. And then we became experts at fighting with each other. And now I was just done fighting. I wasn't going to fight anymore. Trish obviously freaked out. She got up and left the house. And a few minutes later, my cell phone rang, and it was one of our elders. And I said, all the elders need to come over to the house. And so I stood at the door and just kind of handed out my resignation letter to this group of men that had been with me for the last three years. We had just finished a capital campaign and raised $1.1 million to buy the building that we were in. One of the guys in the room had given over $200,000 to that endeavor, and I had cheated on them too. And I was cold, and I was hard-hearted, and I didn't want to hear any truth. About that time, Trisha called the house and asked that I leave, and I didn't really have a plan, and so I went and checked into a hotel. And I got to the hotel, and a lady from our church called, and she said, if you have any desire at all to reconcile your marriage, you need to show up at this counseling appointment tomorrow morning. And for the first time in my entire adult life, I was unemployed, and so I had nothing to do at 10 o'clock the next day. And I thought, what the heck, I'll go to this counseling appointment. And that appointment began a journey for me Trish and I were separated. We didn't speak for the next 10 days. We were separated for two and a half months in total. But I began to go to counseling every day except for Friday. You think your life is jacked up? I went to counseling four days a week, okay? You're not that bad, okay? There's hope for you, I promise. And began to peel back layers of my heart, layers of dysfunction, layers of brokenness that I'd never identified before, never... Please tell me that Jesus bled and died for your affair. Please tell us how Christ's blood forgives adulterers like you. Please. Um, never really um, taken, the, taken the time to deal with before. And 10 days after our separation, Trish called me on my cell phone and she said, I hear you've been going to counseling. And I said, yeah. And she said, I'm willing to go with you. And so we began to go to counseling together. And we went four days a week for the next three months. And that began a restoration process that we don't have time to unpack today. But it began God putting together not something that was repaired, but something that was brand new that really continues on to this day. For me to even explain where my journey began you know, with those words, I'm leaving you, I didn't just lose my marriage relationship. 
I didn't just lose my best friend. I didn't just lose my church family. I didn't just lose this reality that I had to share with my three young boys at the time that, one, we're never going back to the church. We're never going back to the only life you know. And not only that, but I don't know if dad's coming home, but the most pain I had in all of it is I lost my identity. The only identity I had known my whole life. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you're in this room and you felt like I did. I was faithful. Like I wasn't just faithful to Justin. I was faithful to God. And God, you gave me a dream and I feel like you've just broken me. Like you have just drop kicked me at the end. So we're going to talk about your faithfulness rather than Christ's. Man, this is difficult to listen to. Of it, and I don't know what to do with it. And in that moment, what I realized, what I had done for the first 10 years of my marriage is I tried to control how my life would look. I try to control it through milestones and achievements. You know, once we're church planners, then things will go well. You know, once we have this happen, once we have kids, once we have kids that sleep through the night, you know, whatever it was, then my marriage would be better. And I felt like I had given my best, but really what I had given was complete and utter control. And God was saying, are you willing in this moment, just like on the boat, just like in that room with all of. So God was saying, are you willing rather than I bled and died for this. Repent and be forgiven. Those leaders, was I going to choose a path of health or would I choose destruction all over again? And just in desperateness, it wasn't like I opened my Bible and said, God, just speak to me. I opened my Bible and said, you know what? You prove yourself to me. If you're really God, I'm so done with this whole church scene. I'm so done with being a... a, a Okay, they've taken the clutter off the top of the Bible. Maybe she's going to open it. I, I am so hoping we get to the cross here. Church planner's wife or whatever you call me, if you're really God, then you show up. And he did. I remember opening my Bible to a passage that I'll be honest with you. It's found in Hebrews chapter 12. And it's just this passage that when I first read it, it made absolutely no sense. It said, for our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always right and good for us because it means we will share in his holiness. And I thought, God, how much more could I be disciplined in this moment? As I continued to read it, it says, no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It is painful. And it was like for the first time, God became real. Like for the first time he was saying, uh, his word says, it's going to be painful. But I'm going to have to choose if I'm going to let go for the very first time of being in control and allowing God to control my life. As I read on, it says, but afterwards there will be a quiet harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So take a new grip with your tired hands and stand firm on your shaky legs. Mark out a straight path for your feet. Then those who follow you, though they are weak and lame, will not stumble and fall, but become strong. I didn't want to walk weak anymore. So you're going to skip the gospel in Hebrews and get right to the exhortation. <sighs> this is just coming off as nothing but law. Where is the gospel and the forgiveness of sins here? 
We're talking about a major moral failing, one that is not outside the reach of Christ's blood on the cross. I wanted to become strong, but in that it meant choosing hard things. I remember um, somebody just handing the phone to me, and it was a counselor from Focus on the Family. And I, I was so desperate to get Justin home. I'm like, just, just tell me how to get him home. And this counselor said to me, if you love Justin, if you really love him, you'll let him go. I'm going to be honest with you. This is where I'm um, growing up on Southside Chicago kind of came up because I was like, listen, I don't know who you think you are, but you are an awful counselor and you need to let me talk to whoever your advisor is because you're getting fired because that is the worst advice ever. Seriously. It was on. Oh, if I could reach through that phone. What he said next forever changed my life. I said, if I let him go, he's going to choose her. And he just simply said, he already has. Sometimes the path that God wants to grow us in is hard to the point where it strips us of our identity. But what God was saying is, if you would let go for the first time and let me, I promise you I will not let you down. And so with that, I did one of the most painful things I've ever done. And I went upstairs and I packed everything Justin owned, not to discipline him, but to let go of control. And I remember smelling his clothes as I put them in a box, just thinking, this is worse than death. It would be easier if he had died. But not only is he alive, he's alive and he doesn't want to be with me. So God, teach me whatever discipline that looks like, whatever letting go of control, teach me what that looks like. And that began 10 days later with a simple phone call. I didn't call him saying, I want to stay married. I called him saying, I'm going to let go of control and I'm going to let God. And if we're honest today, I mean, the affair gets all the attention. It's the bomb that we drop when we go and speak at different places. It's probably 80% of the reason why we get invited to different places to speak. But what we began to realize as we began our own healing journey over the next couple of years is that the affair was just a symptom of much deeper issues. Your sinful nature? Uh, Yeah, okay. Can we get to the gospel now, please? that we had an ordinary marriage long before the affair. And I don't know where you are today. Maybe you're not even married, but here's what I do know about you. You can't have anything extraordinary in your life if your relationship with God is ordinary. And an ordinary friendship is really just an... Oh, so we're going to get nothing but law here. No gospel. Wow. Flow of an ordinary relationship with God. An ordinary dating relationship is really just a overflow of an ordinary relationship with God. And an ordinary marriage is really an overflow of an ordinary relationship with God. And so just as we close just the next few minutes, we just want to give you two principles that um, we kind of outline in the... Two principles. Two principles. Not the gospel. Don't you think that Christ dying on the cross has something to do with this? Forgiveness and reconciliation has something to do with this? But beyond ordinary, uh, when a good marriage just isn't good enough, because um, we believe that if you take these two things and apply them to any relationship, but especially a marriage relationship. Yeah, how many 
passages from the Bible have we heard in this sermon? One verse out of context, and then the, then we got the little passage from Hebrews, which was all exhortation. Oh, boy. Relationship. Been extraordinary is just around the corner. And the first thing that we want to share with you is this, that ordinary is left behind. You overcome ordinary and it's defeated as we tell the truth. No relationship is going to be healthy without truth being spoken. Trish and I went to counseling four days a week, as I said, for the next three months. But 30 days into counseling, we're sitting in our counselor's office. And he said, hey, you know, trust is starting to be rebuilt. Trish is actually starting to believe some things that you're saying. If you've left anything out, you need to confess it right now. And I knew in my heart that I'd left details out that were relevant to our conversation, relevant to our healing. Okay, so you're going to confess. What about confessing your sins to Christ? Hello? Is is this a concept that's lost on people who call themselves Christian pastors of Christian churches? But in my mind, I thought if she knew that, it would definitely be over. And so I confessed those last few details, and she just flipped out. She got up and left. We thought she went to the bathroom. She, like, left the building, left me there. So I found a ride back to my the house that I was staying at. And a few minutes after I arrived, the lady from our church called and she said, you know, Trish is going to file for divorce because you're incapable of telling the truth. And just something about that phrase, incapable of telling the truth, it just gripped my heart. And I thought, you know what? Even if I'm single, I want to be different. Like, I don't want to be a liar. I don't want to be a compromiser of truth. And so a few days later, I came to the house to pick Trisha up, or to pick the boys up for school, and Trisha invited me into the house. And she said, this is your last chance. If you've left anything out, now's the time to tell me. And I said, you know, as far as that relationship goes, I've, I've told you everything, but I have a lot more to tell you. I said, I was sexually abused when I was a kid, and I've never talked about it. I've never told anyone about it. I've never gotten help for it. And I know it doesn't excuse the choices that I've made, but I know there's a wounded part of me that needs healing. And I know healing doesn't come in this moment, but this is the start of it. And I said, I've had a 10-year pornography addiction that I've never told you about, that I've never confessed to, that I've never been honest about. And I've deflected it, and I've talked my way out of it, and I've preached against it. And I understand if you never want anything to do with me, but I want to be a person of truth. Even if it costs me our relationship, I don't want it to cost me my relationship with God any longer. And yet, God knows all about this, and Christ has bled and died for all of these sins. And it's through the forgiveness of sins that we are set free from bondage to sin. Oh, yeah. I mean, Jesus hasn't even shown up at all in this. And yet he should be the center of this story of reconciliation. And an act of grace and mercy, unlike anything I've ever experienced, she simply just said, now we can start over. Act of grace and mercy. What about the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross? Now we can begin again. Because I finally know the real you. And those conversations weren't the last of those conversations. They were the beginning of conversations that really continue on in our relationship to this day. But I think we convince ourselves, especially in a marriage relationship, that we can share 80% of the truth and experience 100% intimacy. 
And that equation will never work out. The word intimacy means to be fully known, and God created you to be fully known by Him and fully known by someone else. And when we compromise truth in our relationship with God, when we compromise truth in our marriage relationship, we put a lid on the amount of intimacy we're capable of experiencing. Um, yeah, with God, that kind of pretty much burns the relationship. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Where is the forgiveness of sins in this message? I don't know what that means for you. I don't know what that looks like for you, but maybe for some of you today, God is just asking you to be honest with him. God is longing to pull you back into a loving relationship, and the lies that you're telling yourself are preventing you from experiencing an intimate relationship with God. And you want to move past ordinary? Yeah, notice that the the who's in, who's responsible for the reconciliation here between you and God? It's you, not Jesus. Hey. You want to move past mundane and mediocre? It starts by being a person of truth. Now, here's the deal. The truth will set you free, but it will probably make you miserable first. And so you have to choose to step into some maybe some deep waters so that you can experience extraordinary on the other side. Uh, the last thing we leave you with is ordinary is defeated when we learn to forgive. Or I would say when we choose to forgive. And- okay, first mention of anything even remotely resembling the gospel. It's long overdue in this sermon. Why should we forgive? Please say something about the cross. Please say something about what Jesus did. I was on such a quest in the first 10 years of our marriage to be right. I was on a quest to control. And if Justin would just change, if he would just see things, if he would just know how I'm being ignored, if he would just start paying more attention to me, if he would be more present at home, if he would come home on time, if he would let me spend things like I I wanted to spend our money on, all of these things, if he would just change then our marriage would be better. And you know what? If everybody knew the truth of our marriage, if they knew how wrong he was, then I would, I would be right. I would prove myself right. And in the end, me being right in the affair taking place did not bring one ounce of healing that I thought it would. And it would have been easy for me to say, I've proven it. So now, you know what? You spend the rest of your life making it up to me. But what God was teaching me is that I had to choose to be different, that Justin could not be God for me, and he was never meant to be. He can't change my heart, and I can't change his. What we're not hearing and what we should be hearing is that because of Christ's forgiveness of my sins, I now can forgive even my husband. This isn't rooted in the cross and what Christ has done. This isn't rooted in true Christian, biblical, blood-bought forgiveness. I had to choose to forgive. And and what I realized is that I had a forgiveness issue long before the affair. Oh, please get to the cross. Please get to the cross. Obviously. And unforgiveness is usually what is rooted by bitterness. And so you go through the cycle, and maybe you've been there where you feel wounded and you don't know what to do with it. That, you know, the ugly cry everybody talks about. This is like beyond the ugly cry. This is like my heart hurts because I've been so wounded. I don't even know how to wrap my mind around it. 
And for most of us, we move from that place of grief that the anger wells so much up in us, we don't know what to do with it. And so we, pres- we self-preserve ourselves, we protect ourselves by bitter- being becoming bitter people, right? Because if I'm bitter, I'm not going to feel, and you will not hurt me again. And it just becomes this cycle. And to do something over and over and over again and expect it to be different is what? It's insanity. And I had lived my marriage for 10 years, an insane person. I didn't want it anymore. So, God, if that is what unforgiveness is, what is forgiveness? The cross. God demonstrating his love for us in the, even when we were sinners, while we were still powerless, Christ dies for our sins. Please tell me that. What he was showing me is that God has given us the gift of grief. It's when we stop. God's given us the gift of grief. (laughs) Ignoring what's going on around us and and we stand in the gap and say things are not well. It's when we we stop coming to church and you know, you know, you've done this. It does not matter if you are with um, a sibling or if you're with your family unit. Is the cross even on your radar? You get into that church argument in the parking lot, the parking lot church argument. It's very special and unique to the church parking lot where people are in tears. And if you have young children, you're like, get it together. And so you walk in the church. And of course, that one morning that everybody melts down and you've just reapplied the makeup, pastor's there waiting for you and says, how are you doing? And you're like, I'm good. And then you look at your kids and you're like, tell them you're good, right? (laughs) Because that's how we function in the church. But when we step into our reality, we're able to come into church and say, I am messed up today, pastor. And I don't need you to do anything for me. I just need you to know that I'm really messed up and there's power in confession. Yes, but there's even more power in absolution. Unfortunately, from what I'm seeing here, this is literally the fruit of law-based, quote-unquote, Christianity, rather than cross-focused Christianity. Because where the gospel is there to forgive and absolve sinners through the shed blood of Christ, there's no need to put up a facade. And it's important that you confess your sins, but it's more important than even that, that you hear that Christ bled and died for those sins and that you're forgiven I'm not hearing absolution here at all. This is horrifying. And that God has given us the gift of anger. I mean, when you think about it. How about the gift of the forgiveness of sins? When you read the news and you see what's been unfolding in our society, in our nation, we don't watch the news and go, gosh, well, that's a bummer. No, there's a righteous anger that wells up in us. And when we become angry, we choose to take action. We move to something. And for me, I chose bitterness. And what God was saying, I just want you to be broken before me. I just want you to be a broken person. Give up control. And I thought, okay, God. What passages say that? God, I can do that. And so I gave that to Justin. I offered forgiveness. God, I can do that. And God started to redeem and heal our marriage relationship. But then he... Redeem. So we got some redemption language here. That's a Christian term. He asked me to take it a step further. He's like, I want you to offer that to your best friend. So I remember sitting down and and penning a letter to her and telling her that I loved her, that I forgived her, forgave her, that God had given me eyes to see behind this, you know, myopic view of her as this person who ruined my life, but a panoramic view that we're all just really messed up people. So I sent the letter and, 
in time past, like not just a week or a month, but like a year, two years past. And I felt like I had reverted right back to that person who was in that room saying, God, you did it again. You asked me to offer forgiveness and then you just drop kicked me in the process. And I remember opening my Bible to the only scripture that I knew that talked about forgiveness. And it's that famous passage where Peter asked the only one that talks about forgiveness. This is the only one you know of. Oh, boy. Jesus. Well, Jesus, how many times do I need to forgive? And Jesus replies 70 times seven. And I remember thinking, I'm not good at math. That makes absolutely no sense to me. But what he was saying is that forgiveness is a process. That is something that you may have to choose over and over and over again, not because the person needs it, but because you need to give it. And maybe you're thinking, well, if I forgive them, then they win. If I forgive them, I'm saying what they did was okay. And what I want you to hear today is that they don't win. Christ wins because he wins a piece of your heart. He wins because you get to walk in freedom. He wins because he takes what was broken and he redeems it. And he says to your heart that I know what it's like to be betrayed. I know what it's like to be forgotten. I know what it's like to look up to my father and say, God, God, why have you forsaken me? First real allusion to the cross. Yes, Christ does understand that. He does. It's all part of his suffering on the cross for our sins. And he says to you today, That he chose it. He chose a painful death on the cross to extend forgiveness to you regardless. Okay, there's the gospel. Finally. Now, I'm not going to play the gospel nugget soundbite, but the problem is this. We're getting this at the very, very, very tail end of a very long sermon. This is pretty much close to an afterthought rather than the center. Man, this is a problem. If you would choose him, that true forgiveness is when we offer it regardless of the person's response, even if the offering is over and over and over again. Right. Because we're forgiven, we can forgive over and over, just like Christ forgives us over and over. And so what we leave you with is will you choose Will you choose to believe that your heavenly father who extended such lavish grace over your life, which you haven't really explained at all, will give you enough to extend it to someone else? Yeah, again, it's an afterthought rather than the center of this message. And our prayer, if anything, today you will see evidence of what forgiveness looks like. That God can redeem and can restore. And it doesn't always mean that a relationship is restored, but it always absolutely means that your heart is restored. Will you choose? Let's pray together. Man, absolutely tragic. (sighs) Difficult to watch, difficult to listen to. Christ bled and died for all of it. Yeah, This sin is terrible. It's pernicious. It's evil and it's wicked. And Christ truly bled and died for it. And he's capable through that forgiveness. In fact, it's through his forgiveness when on the cross that our relationship, our broken relationship is reconciled with God. 
We've rebelled against him, and even when we were sinners, Christ died for our sins. Not because of anything that we've done, but because of his great love. God's love is lavish. God's love is extravagant. God's love and mercy for us is beyond what we're capable of even comprehending. And yes, every single one of us needs it. And none of us, none of us is righteous. Not one. And there is the possibility of reconciliation, even in a marriage where one partner has cheated on another. And it's the cross that really makes that possible. doesn't make it easy. It's painful, and there's suffering involved. But what the whole the, oh, the thing that's tragic and difficult to listen to in that whole story is that the Bible was... <laughs> Uh, it was like a, a seasoning. It was a little bit of salt thrown into a story about somebody's terribly tragic life story. And the gospel was an afterthought rather than the center. This wasn't Christ-centered. It wasn't cross-focused. Learned a lot about their relationship far more than I ever wanted to know. And I'm glad in some sense they understand that, that what Christ has done for us and God's mercy has something to do with it. But the fact that it in this sermon, and despite the fact that they've given this talk all over the place, that it that the what Christ has done is not the center, it's an afterthought, tells me they haven't really yet figured out where the cross fits in all of this. And it's even more tragic than the tragedy they went through. What did you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all your sins. Amen.